brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. Greetings, friends. Welcome back to Critically Acclaimed, the film review podcast where uh, good taste and bad taste collide into one another 100 times over. It's our 100th episode! We have nothing planned. We do have something planned. We're going to review films. We have nothing different planned. We celebrate... The way we do everything else. Hmm. We watch movies. My name is William Bibiani. I am a critic. Everybody calls me Bibbs. Uh, my name is Whitney Seibold. I, too, am a critic. I don't have a cute nickname. I don't need one. And um, <laughs> we've had quite a few 100th episodes in our, in our career. Uh, yeah. We've done a variety of podcasts, and most of them tend to last a long-ass time. Um, the, the 100th anniversary is the Diamond Anniversary, mm. I believe. I I'd have to look that up to be sure. I'm pretty sure it's the diamond anniversary. Okay. I know. Uh, Not if, many people get there. If you uh, if your marriage lasts 100 years. Yeah. The only pretty, then do you get if, a diamond. I'm, I'm guessing you married when you were still teenagers. <laughs> I and, would imagine. And you made it to it, so you're like 116, unless, 118. Unless cryogenic freezing is involved. Uh, maybe maybe you live on a different planet and years are a different length. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think, yeah, if you're going to give a gift, you have to give like... Like a, a, di- a ten thousand dollar diamond, and if or something. you and if you give a diamond to your spouse or significant mm-hmm. other before you've been together for one hundred years, bad luck. This <laughs> is bad luck. I wouldn't do it. It's mm-hmm. not a good idea. Anyway, this week on critically acclaimed, where we review movies, uh, we're reviewing the new releases: The Power of the Dog, Benedetta, Diary of a Wimpy Kid, Flea, Wolf, and Torn. Now this and, uh, and the Hand of God. Oh, I forgot how the hand yeah. of God. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Whoops. New Paolo Sorrentino joint. <sighs> Paolo Sorrentino joint. <laughs> well, we'll talk about Paolo. Do you want to start with Paolo no, Sorrentino? No, I don't want to start All with right. No. All right. No, I want to start with something I want to talk about. Uh, the uh, uh, But where, where, where was it going with this? Uh, yeah, this episode's like a day or two late. I uh, had like a long weekend with the movie trivia Schmodown, and I mm. kind of just threw everything out of whack. Uh, we're going to get back on that horse and just write it into a more proper podcasting schedule. Uh, the, the, so yeah, the, the allegory falls flat real fast. But um, the, the point yeah. is, you were busy. You I was were, busy. You were and I busy apologize. competing in a, a high-profile mm. uh, movie trivia tourney. High stakes too. If uh, I pe- lost, they would have cut were, off my thumbs. People were, uh, you know, that's that's the way it yeah. works over at the Schmodown. Yeah, uh, and. Uh, I'm not going to ask you how you did because I think it might be under wraps. It's no. But, uh, I, I, if, if anyone is listening and hasn't heard yet, I'm not going to ruin it for you. But uh, generally speaking, they treat it like a pay per view sporting event. Okay. If you wanted to see it, you would have paid for it. That kind of thing. So mm-hmm. we'll announce the winners. It's out there. But if okay. you are if you are trying to like stay pure and like watch it, but you can't afford to play along, I'm not going to spoil it here. If All you right. follow along on Twitter, you might already but have that spoiled. But but that was why not? The, but regardless, it, it was a really good show. It was an enormous event. Yeah, it was and a live it t- show. Took it was away awesome. from uh, some of our podcasting time, mm-hmm. but we're back on track now. We're a day late. Yeah. Uh, 
but the, not a dollar short. I'm back to many dollars short, short because the economy is bad. But and, and we and this is the end of the year, and this is super oh, duper God. crunch time. So yeah. we're getting so many high profile releases. We're getting slammed awards like contenders. Every and, week's going to be full of awards contenders, and that's yeah. on top of the the would be blockbusters. Like we got you know a new Spider Man coming out, yeah, new Matrix yeah, coming Spider-Man out, Spider Man Eight and Matrix yeah. Four and all the rest. I, I I'm hey maybe they'll be fun, but right now this this week first week of December. Usually not a big week for the blockbusters, but there's a lot of really interesting indie art house international films well, that are out right now, and if, that's very uh, exciting. If you're like us, a weekend where there's not just a Paolo Sorrentino movie, but a new Jane Campion and a new Paul Verhoeven movie, mm-hmm. that's definitely uh, noteworthy. That's a cool weekend. Yeah. Uh, so let's get let's get started, and let's start with. Um, oh, yeah, I like dogs. You like dogs? You like dogs? Uh, I'm more of a cat person. I don't hate dogs. I just don't want to live with one. So you don't. You wouldn't say that you respect the power of the. Dog. Oh my god! You didn't uh, think I was going there? When I, you... I knew you were going there. There's there is no dog in the power of the dog. There is uh, actually it's, a dog. It's it's not vital to the plot. No, it is not. But there is technically a dog. <laughs> Fine. And Jane could... Campion made a movie called The Power of the Dog. <laughs> it's based on a novel from 1967, and it is a western. Yeah. It takes place in the 1920s on a ranch. And it is about toxic masculinity. Oh boy, howdy is it. Uh, Benedict Cumberbatch and Jesse Plemons uh, play wealthy uh, wealthy brothers. Uh, Jesse Plemons uh, fancies himself a bit more of a, of a urbanite. Yeah. Urbanite sophisticate. And uh, Benedict Cumberbatch, even though uh, he has like a lot of like you know fancy book learning, uh, he fancies himself a man of the land and likes likes to cover himself with mm. mud and and like wrestle cows and like there's be a, a total badass. There's a lot of shots of uh, of nude men in this film, a lot. and I'm not saying that because you know for lascivious reasons. I think mm. uh, Jane Campion is looking at uh, the way men uh, sort of wield their nude bodies in nature mm-hmm. as a way to commune with it and maybe dominate it. Well, this is a story about um, men who live alone. Mm. The, the men at this ranch, they, 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 the two brothers live alone on this ranch with a lot of male ranch hands who follow every single thing Benedict Cumberbatch says. And, Jesse and Plemons is a, very much... And he's a, a very good rancher with yes. a, a, a very strict way of doing things, especially yes. as it pertains to... Uh, sick animals. That's a big, uh, big part of his ethos. Yeah, he doesn't. If, he, the dog, if the cow has anthrax, it's anathema. We don't touch it. Get away. Mm. Uh, but they do have a couple of women who work there, but they're the help. So they, this is a, sorry. I got a little buzz. My, sorry, sorry. Honestly, priorities. Uh, but uh, this is about what happens when uh, a bunch of men get together and dominate the land together, and there are no women around. To change that dynamic, and what happens when Jesse Plemons meets and falls in love with a widow played by Kirsten Dunst? She has a teenage son played by Cody Smith McPhee, and he marries her, and he takes her back home. And Benedict Cumberbatch wants none of this, and he starts undermining her in sometimes subtle, sometimes very obvious ways, uh, in ways it- that would remind me very, very much of Alfred Hitchcock's Rebecca. But none none of them in a way where he's doing anything aggressive mm. toward her. It's not like in Baby Jane where he's like serving her rats or something. But, no, no. It's, it's, all, uh, it's, all, uh, it's all the kind of thing where like if you complained to someone, here's what he's doing. Every time I see him, he whistles this same song. It doesn't sound that bad. Mm. But in the context of their relationship and what he knows it means, it becomes this like 
sort of it's an anthem intimidation of, tactic. It's become this yeah. anthem of cruelty. Mm-hmm. So like, it, and it's really starting to mess with their mind. And uh, and it's not just about his toxic masculinity and how he's rejecting sort of the uh, the entrance of the feminine into this space. It's a, a very much about just sort of gender roles in general. Yeah. Because uh, the Kirsten Dunst character is also feeling a great pressure to be. A, a homemaker now. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's married. I think she, uh, she's married her second husband. Yeah, her uh, first husband. Her first husband. She's uh, yeah. is the fa- is Cody Smith McAfee's father. And yeah, he's he's dead. Uh, so now she's married her second husband, and uh, she's expected by Jesse Plemons to be a little bit more of an entertaining lady. Yeah, one of the that first is things... will entertain company. And yeah. uh, uh, we're we're rich, and every once in a while, famous people will stop by the ranch, yeah, so, and I uh, want you uh, to be able to play piano for yeah, them. And he's big... very encouraging. He's not bitter about it, but there's still a lot of pressure he's putting. Well, on he, her. he's definitely putting pressure on her, and she's uh, clearly not in a position where can she, she keeps on saying, "I only played piano for like for movies." It's the yeah. '20s, and you know there were silent movie houses, and that's you're just sort of plinking stuff out there. It's not important what the <clears> tune is. Yeah, I don't really know how to. Like play a nice piece for yeah, people. I'm, I'm not good, yeah, is what she wants. So to she she's her. on she's under this tremendous pressure, um, and she begins drinking uh, yeah. as an alcoholic would. She hides booze around the house mm-hmm. uh, and doesn't want anybody to know that she's drinking. But Benedict Cumberbatch sees that and uses it uh, uses it as more mm-hmm. of this kind of intimidation leverage. Again, he's not trying to achieve anything. Through he doesn't this. have a specific goal other than making mm. sure she's unwelcome and if somehow that all conspires to have her mm. leave, run away, drink herself to death, mm. he'll be fine with it. Like what however no. that works out, he'd probably be okay. Uh Jane Campion has made I I'm, I'm not a huge Jane Campion uh deep diver. I've seen no. like four of her movies. Yeah. Uh she's same, very good. Same. Uh, I've, I've seen Holy Smoke. I saw Portrait of a Lady. Um, I really like Holy, Holy Smoke. Uh, I, saw piano, the, I, I saw the piano. Yeah, yeah. Um, a lot of her films tend to be about uh, gender power dynamics. Mm. And never has that been in stronger display than in The Power of the Dog. Mm. Because it's all about gender power dynamics. And sexuality and how people are wielding these subtle bits of power over one another. To, in a way that is just... It feels like the birth of like fascist... Like mind thinking, mm. uh, fascist thing, sort of like the origin of that, rather than using these tactics mm. in order to, um, in in order to break something or, there, or overpower someone. There, there's a quality to this to this mm. film I really like, where even though it's in the 1920s, and you know, it mostly takes place on this ranch. We don't see a lot of what we consider to be 1920s civilization. You know, cars, movie houses. Yeah, it's it's, an, know, t- it's in a technology. rural area. It's very yeah. rural. It's so rural that if you know if it, you, you you could see vast swaths of the movie and not know what era it is. Mm. And I think that works very much in the film's favor because there's a certain uh, timelessness to this that I think makes it extra powerful. There's This mm. ends up having the, the quality of a Greek tragedy or a gothic novel. Um, it really does feel like the kind of story that you probably read in English class. Like this was like a required reading kind of thing. I realize it's based mm. on a 1960s novel, but... Um, this takes on this like epic quality, even though it's very very intimate. The movie I was the movies I was thinking about most when I was watching this, and these are good movies to think about when you're watching another movie, mm-hmm. are Days of Heaven, yeah, another just, another great doomed romance, you know, tragedy, uh, set in the in the early 20th century, uh, and as I said, Rebecca, which is another story about a woman moving into a house where the people, some people there, do not want them, yeah, and it, it takes it, on an increasingly cruel 
wicked quality. And I love where the power of the dog goes. And I love where well, you start, mm. without ruining where the plot goes, as you start picking up on nothing in this movie is in here by accident. Every single thing is very particular. Mm. And as a result, once we start seeing certain things in the movie and you start thinking to yourself, well, that's in there for a reason. Oh, shit. <laughs> oh, yeah, shit. Um, okay, uh, uh, let's do this. There's a, you're, you're alluding to something that I think I can describe. Um, uh, the relationship between uh, the Benedict Cumberbatch character and the Cody Smith McPhee character. Yeah. Uh, he is, um, he reads as queer. He steps mm-hmm. on screen. And he's uh, uh, Benedict Cumberbatch. I think he even calls him like a fancy lad. And, mm-hmm. and, uh, well, initially, so, initially, so that's part of his rejection is he's mm-hmm. also rejecting this element of queerness that's yeah. entered this well, space. When we, when we first see Cody Smith McPhee in the movie, mm. I think it's like the first scene or first shot in the film, mm. uh, he is making paper flowers. And they look really good, actually. Mm. It's like they're really nicely done. And uh, Kirsten Dunst's like, oh, those are lovely. We can use those on the on the table at this like bed and breakfast that we own. Mm. And uh, Benedict Cumberbatch and his ranchers go there for a meal. And Benedict Cumberbatch looks at the flowers and he starts fondling them in a very sensual way. Like, oh, whichever lady made these is mm. the lady for me. And then Cody McPhee says, oh, I made those. And you can just see Benedict Cumberbatch's face goes, I did not want to have to think about this right now. <laughs> and I am going to get very shitty to mm. you immediately. And yeah. indeed he does. Uh, this is a story about those, like, intimidation. But it's, it goes in a way where you're not going to expect it. And it doesn't come into a head the way you're going to expect it to. Mm-hmm. And it sort of crests in a much gentler, more humane way than you, you're going to expect it to. Mm-hmm. Even though I think there's still a lot of acid and and, mm-hmm. and dark feelings and alcoholism. The, there's definitely a way this could have gone uh, that could have been like a Tales from the Crypt episode. Yeah. And, and it, 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 doesn't, doesn't, it never goes that way. It doesn't go that way. Um, Gene Campion is an incredibly deliberate director, but you wouldn't know it by looking. Uh, by that I mean... You wouldn't know, like it, you you wouldn't said, know it until it all comes together. Exactly. You, yeah. you, you said earlier that nothing's in this movie by accident. And uh, it all feels very natural to the point where you think some of it is very incidental. But Jane Campion is too masterful a director to have something like that be incidental. Everything does build to something. Yeah. She's really thought this out. And yeah. it is impeccably made. Yeah, it's, and it, uh, its point of introducing hmm. this uh, element of toxic masculinity and essentially the end of the Western, this is already the 20th century, mm-hmm. uh, is a wonderful genre breakdown. Mm-hmm. Uh, Benedict Cumberbatch is pretty amazing in this He's role. St- this is his best uh, role I've ever seen him do. He, uh, yeah. Because I-, I can see somebody like a little bit more of a tough guy, somebody like Tom Hardy, say, mm-hmm. who can play a heavy, mm-hmm. take on a role like this and have him be a little bit more of a brute and while Benedict Cumberbatch is brutish, I think he's able to bring a lot more humanity than a more brutish actor might have. Well, he, he never goes for... It would have been so easy with this role mm. as someone who is being psychologically abusive to add an element of physicality to it. Maybe mm. not physical abuse, but physical intimidation. Like, he's he's a tall guy, but he doesn't ever... Yeah, like he never looms, he never people, threatens, he, never, yeah, he doesn't yeah. have to. There's something about that. There's something about the the brightness of, of intelligence that he has, where he is calculating, uh, that makes his character that much more weird in a way. And I mean that in a in a in a sort of a in a, almost in a complimentary way. And uh, he's there's something like deeply wrong with him is his soul. Mm. And as the story progresses, and you realize kind of where he comes from and where his actual sympathies and and uh, uh, where his ego comes from, mm. 
you start to realize that that comes from a place of great fragility or at the very least perceived fragility and a place of great loneliness for him. And there almost comes a point where you wonder, maybe this is going to be a story about Benedict Cumberbatch's unlikely redemption. No, (laughs) (laughs) this is not a happy story. I will say that this is a very, very acidic story. I really love this movie. This is a spectacularly well-crafted piece of cinema. And it's, it's, it's incredibly thoughtful. It's yeah. yeah, Impeccable is the word I used. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and it's, it's, it's salient and timely. I feel like these sorts of movies that are, um, using genre tropes to take on, Mm -hmm. uh, things that we kind of take for granted out of certain genres, Mm -hmm. uh, the masculinity in Westerns, the masculinity in Westerns is taken down pretty often, but I feel like it's masculinity in Westerns has been taken down in Westerns since the Mm. first half of the 20th century. Like it's that there's there's all, yeah, yeah, Cimarron was talking about that for God's sake. Ultimately, I think Cimarron, unfortunately kind of lionized the, the, the bastard hero a little bit too much, but, um, but look where he ends up. Yeah. He ends up, he ends up, I'm, if I can spoil Cimarron, a movie from the thirties. First, he, he first Western up, to win the Academy Award for Best Picture. He, he ends up dead, but lionized, and you know the whole city <laughs> is named after him. So yeah, but uh, nobody, know, the whole city is named after him, but he dies in the city alone and forgotten as a homeless person mm. because there's no place he had, for that. Because he had wanderlust. We we, yeah. we 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 idolize this kind of frontiersman kind of persona, but. Mm there's no place for them in the I, world anymore. I, I hate that his wife who, uh, there, there's a big portion of that movie where she's taking charge of all of his businesses. Uh-huh. She's in charge of the family. Yeah. She's, she's the leader of everything now. Yeah. And she gets like no credit for any well, of that. Well, anytime he comes home, like, oh, I was sorry. I was gone for six years. I had wanderlust. What can I do? And I'm glad I came back when I did, because you were about to screw everything up. I'm a man. I'm a man. Fix everything. Fix everything. I will no, be, I'll I was, see you in 12 years. I was doing fine. I was doing, yeah. get the, Cimarron is not a very good film. No, it isn't. Yeah, uh, it's, it's it's for its time. It was technologically <laughs> innovative. But nowadays, we take a lot of its innovations for granted. But that that's but that actually mm. is a good point, though. The Western genre, mm. um, it, some it can be very very dated if you're not very very careful with it. Mm. Um, even when but you're trying like... to say something very modern with it, you're still kind of trapped in that past. And I think by isolating this story and by making it more of an intimate tale of personalities in conflict mm. um, by making it very, very, very specific. I think Jane Campion has crafted something deeply universal and mm. I really, really want people to see this movie. Yeah. It's, it's yeah. on, it's on Netflix. Yeah. Uh, if you have a Netflix subscription, you can see it. Definitely see it. Uh, yeah. it it's a slow burn kind of film. It's pretty, uh, pretty quiet. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's not like the harder they fall where, you know, there's going to be gun, <laughs> There, there's no guns fired in this. This is no. it's not that kind of I don't western. Think so. No, I don't think so. Yeah. No, nobody has. They're ranchers. They don't have guns. Yeah. Uh, so uh, it's it's not even like oh, and then other ranches trying well, to I mean, take they, over. Yeah. Uh, not, not, nothing contrived no like action. that. It's it's all about character. It's all about moments. Mm-hmm. It's all about little tiny subtle moments. So be sure to like really really dig into this one. Yeah. Uh, uh, I, yeah, I really loved it too. There's only one other movie this week. <coughs> uh, bless you. That we have both seen, mm-hmm. uh, and it is a new Paul Verhoeven joint. Yay! Paul Verhoeven uh, is a filmmaker who has uh, never shied away from, from controversy. Anything. <laughs> from, from anything, I guess is the right word. Never shied away from controversy. Even when he's making movies, 
he got he got his start uh, in Europe making films that are very much about uh, you know sex and violence, and then when he moved to uh, America and started making American movies, he made these big, epic, expensive blockbusters, and instead of making them for everyone, he pumped them full of sex and violence. More sex and violence. Robocop oh. is. You saw what happened when they tried to remake remake Mo- a Robocop for modern audiences. Mm-hmm. That did not, it was not the same thing. Yeah, remember when they remade Robocop? Remember when they remade Total Recall? Remember when you forgot about how they remade Total Recall? <laughs> yeah. Uh, they, uh, Paul Verhoeven understands something fundamental about what goes into movies. Uh-huh. Sex and violence. Yeah. He likes sex and violence. But he doesn't he, like sex but, and violence uh, on a superficial level. No, and I was going to say, yeah. he, he puts sex and violence always to a point, except when he makes Showgirls. Uh, <laughs> Showgirls is supposed to be it's, this... this it's tre- not a good film. No, it's supposed to be a treatise on modern fame, but it is, yeah. it is a crappy flick. Uh, Show, I love it, but it's crappy. Show, Showgirls, Showgirls started off being underrated because Ever called it the worst thing ever made. Mm. And then it started getting kind of overrated because it's still not that fun. Mm. But it's an okay watch did, if you don't mind. You, uh, that it's really kind of weird. And did bad. you ever see "You Don't Know Me"? The documentary about sort of the arc of showgirls. I didn't see the arc. Okay. I didn't yeah, see that it's a documentary about the cult of yeah. showgirls and how um, they started. Like near the end of the film, they tried to like kind of rescue it. No, no, it's actually saying these really important things, mm-hmm. and it's actually trying to. And then they have some critics saying. No, it's it's fun because it's bad. Yeah, it's still bad. <laughs> I, I feel the same way about Showgirls that I do about Halloween Three. Mm. It's the people saying it got kind of a of a raw deal were right, but they overdid it a smidge. Yeah. <laughs> it's, 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 it's still not defended as not like, a, gr- a great work of it's, art. It's just it's kind of weird and it's, interesting. It's, it, yeah, yeah it's, it's it's entertaining, but yeah. it's still bad. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah, Paul Verhoeven uh, just loved to swing for the walls. He made these really sort of broad satires that attacked a lot of uh, fundamental uh, institutions. Yeah. Uh, in this case, uh, he's going the Ken Russell route, and oh, he's and yeah. he is and he is attacking the Catholic Church. This is uh, this is Ken Russell written all over it in sharpie. Yeah, and uh, and I show I so love that a Paul Verhoeven movie is coming out. Uh, this year, when you know, every couple of months on Twitter, you're gonna have some prude uh, come out about against sex scenes in movies, like, oh, they're not necessary, we don't need to see them. And he says, uh, Well, okay, how about a movie with a Virgin Mary sex toy? It's like, Oh, well, <laughs> throws a little grenade into that conversation. Yeah. Um, so, this, yeah, this takes place in uh, a, a nunnery in France in the 17th century. Uh, in in seventeenth century, and uh, the mother superior, played by Charlotte Rampling, uh, has uh, Benedetta under her charge. Benedetta and is when we meet her; she's a young girl. She's, she's played very by an actress named Virginie Efira. Uh, as an adult, she is. Uh, we meet her as a young girl. She's very pious. She sees visions of God, and she believes she speaks to the Virgin Mary and to Jesus Christ. And uh, and yeah. her visions of Jesus Christ are superhero fantasies. Oh yeah. Like she, she envisions she, like men are attacking her, and Jesus comes, some comes in and like chops their heads like, off, like on a white horse holding yeah. a sword and decapitates bad guys. Like that's yeah. how she envisions Jesus. Yeah, uh, we cut to a few years later, and, and you got to remember that joining a nunnery uh, at the time wasn't really like, oh, I just feel the call. I feel, I feel like I should go here. Mm. Oftentimes, it was our family has too many children, uh, and mm. uh, we can just sell this one off. Basically, we're going to give yeah, you, you was, take, take this child off our hands, take some money. And the, there's a moment where the father's coming in. It's like, oh, yeah, we'd like to give you our daughter, Benedetta. And Charlotte Rampling is just like, how much are you going to give us for her? Look, we're <laughs> looking after her. We need like resources yeah. to, to feed, so you, feed and house these so people. They have, so they have to haggle. Um, cut to about 10, 15 years later, Benedetta is mm. a young nun. And uh, while uh, one day while her father is visiting... Uh, 
a young woman is fleeing her abusive and horrifically abusive mm. father. That's Bartolomea. And uh, she uh, basically begs for asylum. And Charlie Rambling says, yeah, this is the Catholic Church. We don't do that. <laughs> and, and she's just like, but what do I, what do, I do here? And then um, Benedetta basically begs her father to chip in some money and let this young woman stay here and protect her. And they immediately want to fuck each other. It's it, well. It's pretty clear. Bartolomea is yeah. is keyed into it immediately. Yeah, it's like, oh, Benedetta. Yeah, we're gonna be lovers. Yeah, uh, Benedetta. Um, she still has it for Jesus. Yeah, and, initially, and she has been interpreting her sexual drive mm-hmm. toward Jesus. Yeah, and she's and been interpreting uh, that as visions from God. Her mm. sexual drive, she thinks of as visions from God. Yeah, it's. Pretty much just a sex drive. Uh, yeah, and but, uh, yeah. and there's and there's a lot of and this is like something out of like an uh, some soft core Euro Euro film from the seventies. Oh, the, the, where they're they're rooming, is an actual yeah, they're, genre. They're rooming together and they're like they have to undress in front of each other yeah. and they can see through this diaphanous sheet that hangs yeah. between them. Oh, I can kind of see your nude body and yeah. There's a scene and where this there's is a scene where Bartolomé so is like about almost Euro. falls in the shower or yeah. in, like in like the in the water closet or whatever and she like almost falls through this thin sheet and like. Benedetta catches her, but like puts her hand on her stomach and her, her like breasts are right in her face. She's like, Oh my. And you're just sort of like, yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah. We Way to go, Paul. We, we know it's good. We know what's going on here. Yeah. And, and, um, subtle work. Benedetta might have a plot of some kind mm. or perhaps not. Perhaps the character, not the movie. The, the movie the, obviously. The, has no, no, the, the character, she, um, the she, question is, is she... Is, she, a, she awakens uh, after having one of her spells, one of her visions, and she has wounds on her hands and her feet, and she mm-hmm. has scratches on her forehead. Mm-hmm. She has the stigmata. Yeah. Uh, which is a sign of divine touch. If, if you yeah. don't know the stog- stigmata, it's... Uh, St. Francis of Assisi. Yeah, uh, the, the wounds the wounds that, that uh, Christ received on the cross, according to the New mm-hmm. Testament, uh, he received wounds on... According to uh, uh, it, most Catholic imagery... It's in on his the palms hands, of your hands. But yeah. actuality, they wouldn't they wouldn't nail you to a cross in your palms because they wouldn't your, hang your hands. Would rip, they would yeah. probably be more on your wrist, but whatever. People didn't know that. But yeah, hand, uh, hands, feet, the the yeah. the uh, spear wound in mm. under the ribs, uh, and crown the, of thorns, and the crown of thorns, the scratches yeah. on the head. Those are all. Yeah. Have you ever saw the movie Stigmata with Patricia mm. Arquette? I don't you, know. You, you, it's mm. uh, it's um, okay. <laughs> Sigma is a piece of crap. It's a bad movie. I, uh, I find it entertaining. Okay. It's, it's a corker. It's just, it's kind of weird. Uh, um, yeah, I'm just going to spoil the ending of Stigmata for you because you're not going to see that movie. Okay. Um, uh, yeah, Patricia Arquette is gets the Stigmata wounds and is also like possessed. She's possessed by a saintly person who may also be evil but may not. Yeah, <laughs> the movie. So, the movie wants to treat getting this. The idea is that Patricia Arquette gets the stigmata, even mm. though she's just a workaday person who isn't even pious. Yeah, and then Gabriel Byrne is supposed to come in and check out. He's like the guy that works works at the Vatican mm. to see if miracles are real. Usually they're not. Uh, and he goes up and says, to her, "Yeah, you shouldn't have the stigmata. You're not even. You're not even religious." And she's like, yeah, I know, it sucks, right? But she keeps getting the stigmata and really mm. scary shit happens. And they try to treat getting the stigmata as this, like, exorcist like horror a, movie yeah, thing. it's like a demon possession but, like, thing. But, like, the movie can't tell if it's trying to be religious or horrifying. And I find mm. that kind of fascinating. <laughs> also, there's this really weird bit where, like, they're on the subway and they reused some shots of the subway, of the runaway subway from the end of Money Train. So the, oh, mu- did they so really? The, so the train oh, is all, God. like, kind of got, like, the battle damage that it does in the movie Money Train, even though it's just a train. <laughs> it makes no sense. I didn't see Money Train, so... Uh, oh, Money Train's uh, fun. Uh, 
This is the money train podcast uh, anyway, now. Anyway, back to back to Paul Verhoeven. Uh, Paul Verhoeven's ben, money train. Benedetta um, uh, immediately, Mother Superior says, if she's getting the stigmata, she is more pious than me, and I'm going to step aside yep. as Mother Superior, even though we can't really be sure what's going on here. Mm. If she's got those wounds... Whether or not they're fake, we have to sort of defer to the power of the church. Yeah. And of course, the church officials move in uh-huh. uh, right through the plague-ridden town outside, mm-hmm. perhaps carrying the plague inside. They're carrying the plague inside. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, to investigate and also uh, figure out mm-hmm. whether or not this Benedetta figure is as pious as she says. Meanwhile, Benedetta uh, who is, has, is, is, is either... Uh, either the cleverest saint in history... Hmm. The cleverest con person in history, or she's letting power go to her head and she's just using this as an excuse to fuck. Paul Verhoeven allows all of those things to be possible simultaneously. Simultaneously, I love All of those things could be true by the end of this movie, and I love that. And I love the way it ends as well. And I'm not going to say how how it kind of goes. Oh, it's Uh, satisfying. It doesn't quite go as wild as something like The Devils. Uh, No, no. Nothing can, really. But uh, it it does have that uh, very deep criticism of the Catholic Church as a power organization Mm -hmm. rather than an organization about piety or morality. Mm -hmm. There's there's at least two characters in this movie Mm. who have a death scene that I can only imagine most actors would kill for. Like it's or, just or die for. Or well, that's true. Like this this is this builds so beautifully. It starts off kind of like just interesting period piece. Then it gets kind of prurient and non-exploitation and not, not in a bad way, but in an in your face kind of way. It, look, it, it, we can just say that Paul Verhoeven isn't afraid to put sex on film. That's, that's something that we don't see in a lot in American cinema in general. That's true. And but, especially not within the last, like, 10 or 15 years or so. But for a little bit, it's hard to tell if he has more on his mind than just, oh, what if people were sexually repressed and trapped in a room together and really wanted to bone? Mm. And that would be enough for some filmmakers. But Paul Verhoeven is a smart filmmaker, and he uses all of that to weave what is increasingly... Like Power of the Dog, it's another period piece that kind of turns into kind of a Greek tragedy at the end, where Mm. everything feels like it is all built up to this gigantic crescendo where the wicked are destroyed and the faithless regain faith and the people who had faith lose their faith. And Mm. everything is just really, really big, but everything feels incredibly earned. Oh, yeah. The performances in this movie are really, really great. In particular, I think Charlotte Rampling Mm. is just killing it here and i'm actually not that i i try not to be that guy who talks about like award stuff i'm surprised we're not talking about her more in the awards yeah, conversation yeah, she's, got a, she's got a good role too she's got like a really showy oscary role too and she's killing it here mm. she's fantastic in this movie Be, uh, because she's the one who uh, is also sort of trying to see things from two moral perspectives and is actually yeah. holding both of them at the same time like yeah. this could be real it could be not but here's the, the appropriate course of action yeah uh, she uh, actually has a good deal of authority but she's not a and even though she's you know a, a stern mother superior mm-hmm. figure, she's not uh, overbearing, overpowering. Yeah. Uh, she makes some very bad she, decisions in here, and mm-hmm. she pays for them, and she realizes what she did. Yeah, yeah. and oof, she's fantastic. <laughs> Every, everyone's good in this yeah, movie. Yeah. Everyone is good in this movie. Um, uh, we we didn't credit uh, the. Uh, Oh. The, the new uh, novice, uh, Bartolomeus, played yeah. by Daphne Patakia. She's a, a Greek actress. I don't know her. Was uh, she an L? Oh, was she? I, I don't think, think she so. might have been an L. Maybe, which was uh, Paul Verhoeven's yeah. last. Not, yeah, yeah. I think it was his last. I think it was his last movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, um, regardless, um, 
Yeah, this is a movie that I think initially when people when it was like being announced and stuff, it was being kind of written off as oh, Paul Verhoeven's just being his controversial. Mm-hmm. He's gonna make a sexy nun movie. He's he's eighty three. He's just it, being prurient. Eighty three. Yeah. Holy shit. He, yeah. Okay. Well, in any case, he's just making a sexy nun movie to make a sexy nun movie, and. I think people who were saying that weren't giving him enough credit here because this is one of the best movies well, of the year for me. Yeah, the, I think this the, movie uh, is this, this. Not only is it just fantastically entertaining, but it's actually got some real depth to it. Yeah, and it's, it's it's really really good. It's got some real depth to it. I admire that it is prurient. Yeah, uh, that, it's that important is, that it is. Yeah. It actually like supports the, the story the, and makes it more interesting the, because the, you understand where these characters yeah, the, are coming from. The, the steam and the sexuality is an important part of it. Same same They're with motivated uh, by the same sexuality. with uh, same with the fascism in uh, Starship Troopers or yeah. the violence in RoboCop. There, that's actually a big important parts of those films. Mm-hmm. Uh, they actually play into the the texture and the tone and the themes of those movies. Yeah, and I feel like this it's if you if you if if RoboCop is less violent, mm-hmm. RoboCop is less powerful, less effective. If yeah, Starship like... Troopers has less fascistic, if you can miss the fascistic undertones in that movie, then that movie there's no is, point to that. Then movie, that movie yeah. is merely fascist. It's not actually a satire mm-hmm. of fascism. And here, if you remove the sexuality or if you toned it as far down as you could possibly go. You're going to end up with a stuff that's more about the principle of the thing than it is about the human drive to to be sensual, to be sexual, and to still, especially in a repressed society, be sexual beings and also have faith. Mm -hmm. You can't have both. It's not about, like, I I will destroy the church because they won't let us fuck. No, I want to fuck and be Catholic. I want to be able to do both things. And, and this, this is exploring yeah. that space where you know, where yeah. where does fucking Catholicism overlap? Uh, it, it's I'm not going to call the film horny because I think no. that's deflection. Mm-hmm. It's a film that's made to make you horny. Uh, <laughs> I feel the same way about a film that came out earlier this year, which is far more lascivious. It's Voyeurs. Like, the Voyeurs. Yeah, it's the only all... other horny movie that came out this year. Really. I know, right? Like it's yeah. these are movies that are just loaded with sex and nudity, and the sex and nudity is actually kind of a big selling point. It's a big mm-hmm. part of it. Yeah, and. I don't want to sound prurient, but it is something I've missed from cinema. Yeah. Uh, sex is a big, important part of a lot of human interaction, and it's yeah. a big part of and there's a, repression as the church has it. And I think that and it's, it's kind of, of people, important that we put that in movies from time and I think, to time. And I think it's worth noting that, yes, it is entirely possible to tell great stories without being sexually explicit or overt. Many have been. Mm. Uh, and indeed, there's a lot of people who are asexual or have different sexual uh, mm. uh, uh, levels or desires and making movies that are not intensely sexual is more inviting or at least uh, mm. more uh, it has more accessible connect, more accessible and mm. more it connects more to a lot of people but there are still a lot of people who are driven by their sexual desires mm. whether they like it or not and we need to be able to make movies about that yeah, and yeah. if you make a movie like that and you remove the capacity to show, to illustrate those carnal needs, mm. uh, you are not going to be able to tell that story as well. Here, and this a, is a great example of how to do it. Here, here, here's where we are. Um, th- this year, I didn't watch the series, but I was familiar with the moment. I saw mm. the scene in question. Uh, it's called Loki. It's a Mar- oh, yeah, yeah. Marvel series. And there's a, a bit where somebody's talking about uh, you've had a lot of partners in your life. You've had some uh, some princesses and maybe some princes. And uh, Loki kind of winks and says, yes, a little bit of both. And we've been so starved for, mm-hmm. uh, in this case, bisexual representation mm-hmm. that uh, this little tiny crumb was feasted upon. Yeah. 
without the sex in the movies, yeah. we're not getting a full gamut of representation. I just want to say something. This is not an important point, but I do want to bring it up. A lot of people are talking about how oh, there's no sex in any of the Marvel movies. That is not strictly true. There was, there was one, one in, in Eternals. There was there a sex was, scene. Before that. All right. Uh, everyone's like, oh, Eternals. It's like the first one. Like, Neh. Incredible Hulk. Okay. There's a great scene in Incredible Hulk. Where Ed Norton and Liv Tyler, they've reunited, and Ed Norton has, you know, he's trying to cure himself of this horrible the, monster. The Hulk, that, Hulk disease. Yeah, yeah. and uh, there's a scene where they are so into each other, and they're so in lust that they're trying to rip each other's clothes off, and then his heart rate monitor goes up. And, oh. he, and they have to, like, stop, and it's, like, really awkward. Oh, that's right. <laughs> and he's like, like, I'm sorry, we can't do this. And she's like, Let's just go at forward. all? <laughs> like, that was actually, like, a scene of, like, you have that in there, mm. but it was you were writing... You were getting out of that sex scene mm. in a way that fit the plot, well, and fit the was, characters, was kind of funny. And, uh, and in, it uh, can be done. In Iron Man, we didn't get to see the scene, but uh, Lizzie mm. Bibb wakes up in bed yeah. after a, a what, night of yeah. wild passion. Uh, but it's not just, the same. No, it's definitely not the mm. same. And the, when we're not having uh, sex in movies, we're not having proper representation in movies, especially queer yeah. representation. So uh, a film yeah. with queer sex that actually has queer sex in it. I think it's kind of important. Agreed. And it's okay to be lascivious from time to time because that's a part of us. So long as you're not being a sleaze about it. And uh, Paul Verhoeven isn't being a sleaze about it, except when he's making Showgirls. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Showgirls is like the big misstep in, in everybody's career. Yeah. Is there, anyone, is there anyone for whom Showgirls is a highlight? Um, Gina Gershon. Ah, she's still got bound, though. Yeah, but that is the highlight. Yeah, but she she's she's living in that movie. She she, <laughs> she prowls to I quote know. the movie. She, she deserves so much better. <laughs> all right, all right. Well, let's give Benedetta a hand. Very nice. Oh, oh no, you're you're doing a transition, aren't you? The hand of God. Oh my God! <laughs> it's a new film from Paolo Sorrentino, or or as I like to call him, the other Fellini. Yeah, or just Fellini at uh, this point. Uh, Many people have compared Paolo Sorrentino to Federico Fellini. Uh, with good cause, he's trying to make Fellini movies. <laughs> Basically, yes. Uh, he um, he has the same obsessions uh, with Fellini that, or the same obsessions that Fellini had, that mm-hmm. is. And he is also obsessed with Fellini. Uh, Fellini made a lot of movies about uh, young men and their sexuality, mm-hmm. aging men and their sexuality. Mm-hmm. Uh, anything that allowed him to contain acres of decolletage, as mm-hmm. it were. Um, excess. That's what he was all about. He well, had a lot, about a lot, a lot of excess. A lot, lot of excess. Uh, he, um, and, and there were also, uh, there were always very, like psychologically personal films, Fellini. Yeah. Uh, whether or not they were about Fellini, they always were like sort of in Fellini's mind or mm-hmm. about Fellini's wife. Uh, who, who uh, starred in all of his movies, and she's really wonderful. But um, we, we both fun because for whatever reason, Whitney and I just aren't big Fellini fans. I I like some Fellini movies. I I don't need to like sort of, sort of run out and grab his box sets. I, I've been meaning to give Eight and a Half another chance because it's a movie you and I both notoriously dislike. Mm. Um, Fellini is one of those uh, filmmakers where ever, I've tried watching his movies multiple times. Mm. I've seen multiple ones of his films, and I don't know if I'm picking the wrong films or what. But every single time I watch a Fellini film, I'm like. Good. I, I, I don't. I don't. I'm not. Int- I'm not intrigued enough mm. to see more. I always feel like I. I, I see what you're doing. Uh, yeah. All you, right. Uh, you might like. Um, oh, what was it called? Um, there was uh, e- e- Evie Toloni. Uh, ah. e- Evie Toloni is um, 
maybe one of the less Fellini movies okay. uh, where he's actually a little bit more of a, of a natural style. His films are actually pretty stylistic. He likes yeah. a lot of artificiality uh, rather famously. And this was actually common European practice at the time. He recorded a lot of his films without sound mm-hmm. and then nice. had the actors come back uh, and dub their own lines later, giving it this weird dreamlike quality. He mm-hmm. liked that uh, sometimes doing it even for films that weren't going to get international tr- distribution, which they were going to dub anyway. Yeah. So it actually made a lot more financial sense to f- shoot films without sound. Yeah, that was incredibly uh, common. Uh, this film, The Hand of God, is Paolo Sorrentino's Ivitalone, huh? in that he's trying to make a little bit more of a naturalist film, where it actually doesn't have a very pointed story. It's actually... Um, it's part Evie Deloney, and I'm also going to compare it to Kenneth Branagh's Belfast from earlier this year, and oh. that it is also semi-autobiographical about the filmmaker's own uh, childhood, or in this case, uh, teenage years. Uh, there's a young man who is sort of the uh, Paolo Sorrentino stand-in. Uh, he's, uh, let me look up the character's name. Uh, his character is uh, Fabietto. He's played by a guy named Filippo Scotti. And uh, this is a story about him and his family. And his family is this large colorful cast of characters there's uh people who sort of inf- people and there's a lot of scenes of them just sort of hanging out at the and having dinner or hanging out on on the the beach or going on a boat ride and uh we just sort of get to see a lot of them interacting the center of his universe are his mom and his dad mm-hmm. who are gi- the ones giving him uh kind of the most moral guidance they also seem to be the most sort of laid back and grounded of this sort of wild cast of characters. So he's getting a lot of this uh, wild energy from his extended family. He's getting a lot of more grounded energy from his parents. And we sort of get to see as, you know, time passes, how their relationships evolve. Uh, His mother and his father aren't always in on the best of terms. And uh, something very dramatic happens partway through the movie that changes his relationship with his mother and his father very dramatically. Uh, I'm not going to say what that thing is. Uh, it's it also rhymes about... with Blair Wolf. <laughs> they get attacked by a Blair Wolf. There are no werewolves in the hand of God. Why are we watching that? <laughs> um, I try to say that this is uh, uh, maybe sort of skewing away from the, the, the Fellini aspect, like the mm-hmm. inspirations that Paolo Sorrentino takes from Fellini. But they're making, they're in production of a Fellini film in the course of this movie. <laughs> uh Fellini's not a character in it. He may as well have been, but there's another uh, famous Italian filmmaker that Paolo Sorrentino studied under who is a character in this movie that the Uh young protagonist takes a few important life lessons from right at the very end. There's actually a really good, uh, wonderful confrontation between the young character and this filmmaker uh, sort of uh, teacher of his uh, on on a beach where they kind of trade some pretty harsh truths in a shouting match. uh, and it's also about this young man uh, sort of traversing uh, the Italian countryside in the 1980s, of course, exploring his sexuality. And he has, and he has uh, cr- uh, you know, various crushes on various hot women who wear diaphanous skirts on beach fronts. And it's Pablo Sorrentino, so you know he's going to shoot the living fuck out of this thing. Everything's just really sumptuous and gorgeously shot, and everything's really laid out very well. So it's all very, very sensual and energetic. Um and I kind of appreciate that it is a little bit aimless. It actually is just about these the string of experiences that this young man is having on his way to growing up. And it's not about a final confrontation. It's not about a plot. Nothing dramatic is happening in the country. Uh, he mm-hmm. is just living his life. And that's really out of character for someone like Paolo Sorrentino. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've seen his film The Great Beauty, 
which I wasn't a big fan of. No, right. I saw this film Loro, which is about Silvio Berlusconi, uh, which, uh, you know, it's kind of well suited because if you know anything about Silvio Berlusconi, he was sort of uh, this very Trumpian figure who didn't have Mm. a lot of uh, political experience. He was much more of like a schmoozer. And that, that sort yeah. of argues that his, you know, his power... Coasting on charm, yeah. He tried to sort of schmooze his way into high office and thinks that's where the ultimate party is. And uh, Silvio Berlusconi uh, rather infamously had what he called bunga bunga parties. Look up what those are because it's disgusting. Um, yeah. And uh, and I saw his film Youth, and I think Youth is his best film. I, uh, because, I actually like Youth. Mm. I, I, don't, I don't love it. But I think Michael Caine anchors that movie well, in, a, in a lot of in a lot of quality character work. I think it's about aging men finally putting a lot of those more uh, lascivious impulses behind them. Yeah, uh, there's a, a really a wonderful scene in that movie where Michael Caine and his best friend are sitting. There, it takes place at like the spa. And he's in a, in a big hot tub with his best friend. And this uh, you know gorgeous young woman comes out and she throws her robe off and gets into the water nude. And they're just sort of looking at her and they're like, yeah, we're done. <laughs> like that's really beautiful, isn't it? Yeah, of course she's beautiful, but what are what are we gonna do? We're eighty, <laughs> you know. The, the, that that time is over for us, and uh, I, I like that sort of coda feel of youth. And this yeah. is uh, a little bit more of the same kind of gentle attitude, yeah. just about sort of starting out. There are some lascivious moments I don't like. Uh, there's a, a scene where um, the young protagonist has an encounter with an older woman who uh, sort of takes her uh, position as sort of like his sexual teacher. And I've seen that kind of scene in so many exploitation movies that it feels kind of worn out here. Yeah. Whether or not that was true to life, mm. uh, it feels really cliche to me. I, did, I didn't like that, that scene just personally. Yeah. Um, I, I appreciate that he's trying to tone it down a little bit. And I appreciate that he's trying to aim a little bit lower and go for something a little bit more true to life. Hmm. There's still a lot of those Fellini markers. And yeah, they right. are there. There's a scene where he's leaning into a room and they're talking about producing a Fellini movie and putting all the pictures of the potential stars up on a bulletin board. And to be fair, a lot of people really like Fellini. When, yeah, when yeah. we consider so, this as maybe a negative, it's going to be a lot positive for a lot of people. Yeah. There's a reason why Sorrentino is as acclaimed as he yeah. is. A lot of people do like this stuff. And so, so as such, there's a few scenes that kind of tip into the fantastic which mm-hmm. are interesting, but I feel like they're distracting from uh, the the mm-hmm. grounded nature of the movie. So it's yeah. a, a little bit uh, neither here nor there in certain sequences, but overall it's pretty good. Okay, well um, that's 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 good, and I'll try to get around to seeing it. Uh, Paolo Sorrentino is this filmmaker. I respect what he does because I get what he's doing, and I know he's doing it really well, but. Thus far, with the the somewhat exception of youth, which does it too, but I think gets away with it better. Mm-hmm. Um, when I finished watching Apollo Sorrentino joint, um, I get the feeling that my opinion of the movie doesn't matter because the movie is so unbelievably fucking proud of itself. <laughs> like, it's just like, look what we did! And I'm like, yeah, okay, cool. I, I, does I, my I, opinion matter? No! I saw what you did. Yeah. I'm not impressed. No, no, no. Like, Paolo Sorrentino, just the act of making the movie was enough for him. Like, he's just, like, so... Every single sequence Mm. in The Great Beauty, for example, just feels completely self-congratulatory to me. And it just rubs me the wrong way. I just... If the movie was a person, I wouldn't want to hang out with them. That's what it boils down to. It's just just the personality clash. Doesn't mean they're a bad person. Doesn't mean they're Mm. a bad movie. It just means that this is... We are not in the right same wavelength at all. I I find it interesting that... um, there's there's a lot of like sex and nudity in this film mm-hmm. because it is about a young man sort of 
discovering sexuality. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, there's sex and nudity in this film. There's sex and nudity in Benedetta. They're, those are European movies. Yeah. Uh, there's there's not a lot of American films that are doing that. Um, so I'm I'm appreciative of at least that aspect, the frankness of it. All right. Uh, well, uh, speaking of of young men uh, coming to terms with etc. I didn't see the Paul Sorrentino movie. I'm trying to find a, I'm trying to find narrative tissue here. All right. Uh, uh, let's talk about the documentary Torn. Tell me about Torn, because I didn't see this. Torn is a new documentary uh, about a subject about which I know next to nothing that I haven't learned from a Sylvester Stallone movie. It's about mountain climbing. (laughs) Okay. Uh, Torn. Have have you ever gone scrambling or anything? No, I was never very good at it. Uh, I I could barely climb a tree even when I was like a spry little kid. I just was never really good at it. It's fine. Just wasn't for me. Um, Also, I'm not afraid of heights. But I respect that they could kill me, <laughs> so I stay away. Yeah. It's like, I'm not afraid of snakes, but I'm not going to go just, like, hang out with a whole bunch of cobras, like, in a pit. Mm. And be like, hey, cobras, what's up? Like, I'm not going to do that with mountain climbing either. That's where I'm at I'll, with this. Um, I'll go to a high spot. I just don't want to fall off. Well, exactly. And I don't want to put myself... I want to minimize the odds of me doing that mm. uh, to zero, if possible, please. So I'm just not going to do that. But I wouldn't say I'm, like, paranoid of heights. I digress. Uh, but this is all about heights. Tor- well, sort of. Uh, Torn is the story of uh, a real-life mountain climber. His name was Alex Lowe. And in the... Actually, I'm a little hazy on the on the era here. But in the 90s, maybe even the 80s, uh, there was a big boom in mountain climbing as, as the sort of extreme sports uh, started becoming more popularized and becoming a little bit more mainstream. Uh, and Alex Lowe was considered one of the best. Okay. One of the best mountain climbers in the world. Uh, it was his passion... Uh, it was his drive. He spent most of his time, most of his year, uh, mountain climbing all over the world. Much to the chagrin of his family, who were basically sitting at home. The kids, three sons, didn't really spend a lot of time with their dad. Mm. And uh, his wife, Jennifer, uh, knew what she was getting into. She knew that this is who he was. And initially, she never even thought of it was marriage material because of this. But she fell in love with them. They got married, and initially, for like seven years when they were married before they had kids, it was fine. They traveled the world and everything was great, but when they started having children, he started getting torn. He started having that wanderlust we talked about, where he could stay home with the kids, but the longer he stayed home with the kids, the more irritable he got, the more nervous and antsy he got, and he needed to just go climb a fucking thing. Um, In around 1999... He was in Nepal, mm-hmm. and he got caught in an avalanche and died. Oh, rest in peace. Indeed, great tragedy. Made made like was made all the papers and everything. He was a big figure. I was unaware of it because I wasn't following mountain climbing, but he was a big deal. This documentary is uh, directed by his eldest son Max, and it is not so much about him as a great mountain climber. Mm-hmm. It's about what happens when you're a great mountain climber and you really didn't focus on your family very, very much. And now you're dead from mountain climbing and your family has to figure out what the fuck to do. Hmm. So it's about three sons who are now adults and they're all like a little bitter and confused, you know, about like who their father was. What did he actually represent to them? And then it turns out his father's best friend, another mountain climber, uh, started helping out with the family more and more. Like, you know, if I had died, I'd want him to help out, you know, with anyone I left behind. And then he fell in love with their mom and then they got married. 
and now they have this other mountain climber for a dad, and they don't know how much to accept him. And the more you watch the movie Torn, the more you realize this isn't about sports. This isn't about mountain climbing. This is about a guy who lost his father at a very young age and is making a documentary trying to figure out who's his real dad. Oh my goodness, okay. And on that level, it's a good documentary. I actually do appreciate how probing he is when he's doing interviews because initially you don't really know like this is where the emotional center of the film is uh but he's like interviewing his mom and he's interviewing his stepdad and there's this bit where like he's interviewing his stepdad and they're finally talking about like what happened after you realize that you're in love with my mother and everything and he starts asking questions like did you ever feel like you were invading the space of your best friend this kind of Hmm. weird like Kind of accusatory, but not direct. No, no implication of anything negative. There's no Hamlet shit here. Did you kill my dad, obviously? Oh, yeah. But it's just like, do you ever feel like a usurper kind of thing? Yeah. And you can tell that this guy did nothing wrong. This guy actually like was a kind of a weird situation. Hmm. But this guy's actually trying to be a really good father to these kids. And unlike the kid's actual biological father... He put in the work, and even though he still does some mountain climbing, he does a lot less of it, and he's a lot less dangerous about it, and he always prioritizes those kids. And over the course of the film, we just see the, the documentary filmmaker become more and more comfortable admitting that this other guy is his dad. Hmm. And that's kind of beautiful, actually. Yeah. I was expecting something a little bit more sportsman-like free solo kind of thing about because mountain climbing if you think about we're gonna make a movie about a mountain climber you imagine it's gonna have mountain climbing in it because that's gonna be kind of the selling point and i've seen a lot of really good mountain climbing documentaries uh but yeah this ended up being this kind of like really intimate almost like a 90s indie drama kind of thing like it could take all place this could have all taken place over the course of a weekend Mm. you know and you can imagine like i don't know i'm trying to think of who would be like uh, jeremy davies (laughs) <laughs> like in the, in the late 90s, like coming home, mm. unsure how to deal with his dad, who's mm. played by Gene Hackman or something. Gene Hackman. And it's just like, yeah, but for Walken. Yeah. And then like, it turns out like when he like, yeah. And like Matthew McConaughey is playing the young version of his dad. But then like, but Matthew McConaughey wasn't big yet. It's kind of weird. Yeah. Um, it's a good little documentary. It's not like epic or necessarily profound, but I found myself struck by how increasingly intimate it got over time, hmm. which is something movies don't often do. Yeah. Uh, so I, I dug it. It's it's worth checking out. Um, I yeah. I I am not a big documentary guy in in general. Mm-hmm. I don't. Uh, you know, I don't review sad, them. Yeah. I don't review them a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I was this one got under my skin a little bit, and I quite liked it. So All I'm right. just going to give it a hearty recommendation here. Uh, what do you want to t- tell me about Diary of a Wimpy Kid? Let's, <laughs> okay, let's, what we're talking about? Jump to Wolf. But right, we're talking um, about kids and stuff. I don't know. Uh, Diary of a Wimpy Kid is. Um, animated film on Disney Plus uh, from director Swinton Scott. I know Swinton Scott because he worked on The Simpsons and Futurama. So he has a a little bit of an irreverent sense of humor as a director. Uh, And uh, this is also um, the fifth Wimpy Kid film and only the first one I've seen. Uh, Okay, I was about to ask because I know there have been several live action Yeah, there were four live action Wimpy Kid films. Is this like going right back to square one? Do you you have any idea if that's the case? Uh, This is based on the first Wimpy Kid book and this is the first animated film. It's animated in the style of of the drawings in the Wimpy Kid books. Um, Let me look up the author of of The Diary of a Wimpy Kid books. I'll do that while you keep Um, talking about them. Okay, um... uh, Jeff Kinney is is the name of the author. Uh, Jeff Kinney also wrote the screenplay for this. Uh, And... 
Diary of a Wimpy Kid. It's it's a big sensation uh, for like elementary school kids. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there has uh, been for a while too. Yeah, the the setup of the books is it is a diary of a ostensibly wimpy kid uh, who is trying to traverse middle school for the first time. He's eleven mm-hmm. years old, and uh, he is. A little shit. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the wimpy kid is a selfish little uh, a selfish little jerk who is trying to. Uh, he's reached the age where he understands what cool is. Cool, that is the concept of cool. Mm-hmm. He understands that it's important that it's something he needs, but he's also uh, and and in so doing has to sort of shake off all of his uh, little kid habits, like the things he remembers growing up. Mm-hmm. And uh, this leads to him really mistreating his best friend, Rowley, who is uh, still enjoying, you know, silly jokes and fart noises and you know, wearing shirts with unicorns on them. He still likes little kid stuff because he's 11. And 11 can be kind of an awkward age. It's where you're sort of trying to push forward into being an adolescent, but you're not an adolescent quite yet. Uh, he's also uh, picked on by the bullies at his school. His school is really awful. Uh, one of the central... Uh, Central details of his school is that uh, on the blacktop of the basketball court is a piece of cheese that's been there for God knows how long. <laughs> uh, nobody has bothered to clean the basketball court, so this little the slice of cheese has been there, and this has led to a stigma about the cheese touch. If you touch it, you're infected, and you can only uh, you can only get rid of it by touching somebody else, and they have the cheese touch. Rumor has it that somebody uh, was touched, and then they moved to California, so it's gone. <laughs> I like I like I like those little kid details yeah. about you know the sort of the the authenticity of uh, these weird social pressures you go through as a mm-hmm. kid. Um, in the book Diary of a Wimpy Kid, which I've read, I've read it, I read it to my son, and I actually kind of wish I hadn't because it's a very bitter book. Oh, and it is about it's not about how um, this kid learns lessons. He stays selfish. Uh, he mistreats his friend and enough time passes that his friend kind of comes around again, but he never really thinks to apologize or be a bigger person. He's he's still 11 and he still has those selfish impulses and he still doesn't like this kid. In fact, uh, he, one might see these books as, and this movie, uh, this, this, these all go into this movie as well, as uh, maybe an examination of how bullying is passed on. If you are bullied, you in turn often bully others because that's the social interaction you're used to. Mm -hmm. If if a bigger kid picks on you, you understand that bigger kids pick on smaller kids. Mm -hmm. So you pick on smaller kids. And that makes the bigger kids feel powerful. And if you want to feel powerful, that's the thing to do to do it. Exactly. And um, so this film isn't that thoughtful. This is a 53-minute animated trifle. Oh, is it that short? It's only 53 minutes in length. Wow. It's almost a, almost a TV special. It is almost um, a TV special. I would, I, wow! But it, it has professional production no, design. No, 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 no. It's fine. It's just that's yeah. that's short by any standard. That's like yeah. remember? The, I guess I guess last year's host fifty eight minutes, but it is under an hour. Yeah, but it's, but it's, that's like host was that long. Yeah, it was only yeah. about fifty minutes, or which so. is totally fine by the way. But that's usually like I think 40, when we was it forty or forty three where the Academy cuts off feature length. I think it's. 41. Yeah. Like, I think it's somewhere around if, there. If it's that length, that's still a short. If it's anything much over longer, like 40, then it's basically. a feature. So this is a feature. Yeah. No, it is totally a feature. But like usually when we think of a feature, I think even when we talk about like, ah, I remember back in the golden age of Hollywood when movies were shorter and they crammed so much in. And we're thinking of stuff like Frankenstein. It was 71 minutes. It was still over an hour. So like, I, 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 this is not a, not a critique, just mm. sort of a damn. 
Yeah. All right. And, cool. and, and I feel like um, this film version, uh, comparing it to the book, actually cuts out a lot. There's a, a, you know entire subplots. Diary of a Wimpy Kid is supposed to be the course of, uh, I think, of a whole year. Yeah. And uh, this only covers, like, maybe a couple months. And we get to see, like, sort of what he does on Halloween mm. and how uh, <clears throat> he has to... Are we sure it's not, like, a pilot or something that they got repurposed? This was a 20th century animation film that was bought in the Disney Fire sale. Oh. So this is being dumped onto Disney+. Plus. They might... Oh God, I wonder... Hmm. I wonder so, if it's even finished. Like maybe, yeah, it's, maybe, maybe, maybe it's that short some, because they decided yeah, this, maybe like, there was, they were like this, like, still animating can, can some we, of it. Can and we cut some corners? And just, yeah, yeah, maybe. I don't know. I don't know. Um, That's a speculation, but I appreciate the film a little bit more because it actually does have the character sort of having a little bit more of an arc. It actually does end up doing something a little bit noble by the end, which makes for a more satisfying, satisfying story. Even if the books were supposed to be about how he never learns a lesson, mm. uh, but it does still have some of that that cynicism and fear and hate that is kind of a vital part of the kid experience. Uh, you know, not the rosier parts, but it's things we we encounter as children, uh, and they're dealt with in a little bit of good humor. I just wish mm. um, maybe it had been a little bit more thoughtful and a little bit less sort of hyperactive in its sort of elements of gross out humor okay well i saw a very different animated film Mm. i saw a danish film called flea which is actually an animated documentary uh by Jonas poer rasmussen i hope i didn't uh butcher that too much um and this is a story about uh, a refugee from afghanistan and how as a small child he and his family tried to flee Afghanistan to Russia and then from Russia into Europe. And also how during that time he started to realize that he was gay mm. in, a, a, in an environment where there wasn't even a word for that. Mm. Those are a couple of heavy things happening like right at the same time. <laughs> yeah. here. Um, it it opens with uh, this this young man. Uh, his name is Amin, and we actually see the the almost the entire movie is animated. The only bits that aren't animated are a couple of like newsreels where sometimes Amin will talk about a historical event or historical time, and we'll see like some clips of like what Americans would have seen on the news, mm. uh, just to give some context, a little broader uh, socio political scope. Uh, but the majority of this is animated. Some of it is just uh, rotoscoped. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of which is clearly uh, they are illustrating and recreating uh, scenes from his childhood where there was no footage. Okay. Uh, so it's a bit of an it's a bit of a documentary uh, narrative hybrid there. Um, I find that very exciting. Um, it, I think we've gotten a little too um, aggressive with how we decide to categorize things. Like, is this a documentary or is it a narrative film? Yes. Uh, it's clearly both. Yeah. It's clearly both things simultaneously. I don't mind what you call it. Uh, and I find that very, very intriguing. Um, the more hazy his memory is, the less vividly detailed the animation is. Okay. Which is kind of I like fun. I wish, yeah. they, I wish they played more with that, but it is a neat touch and it does give it a little bit of uh, visual vibrancy to it. Um, but, um, yeah, this is just a story of a guy who is talking to a documentary filmmaker about his life. And there's this really great bit at the beginning where he's talking about how he's discussing things that he's never talked about before. 
Hmm. Some of which are things that, you know, could have damaged his refugee status. Like uh, he, uh, in order to uh, be refugee in, uh, in Denmark, uh, he had to say that uh, he was the last surviving member of his family. That was not true. Hmm. Uh, and just admitting that could potentially jeopardize his his status as a refugee, his ability to stay in that country. Um, but it's very difficult when watching the movie not to understand exactly why that was completely 100% necessary. Um, obviously, um, there was a ton of information out there and uh, about uh, the uh, political upheavals in the Middle East over the course of the 20th century. Uh, this is not a informative documentary about all those details. It's a story about very personal experience. Um, seeing all the different ways that people who are refugees in one country or another are preyed upon by corrupt police, mm. by housing markets, by human traffickers. Uh, there's this incredible bit where um, they are they're fleeing Russia. And they're walking on foot, like across the border. They're going to get on a boat, and they're going to be shoved into a, like a like the bottom of this this little rinky dink shitty boat, and they're going to try to travel. And if they get caught, they could get shot and killed. And while they're walking, they realize that one little kid who is like on the journey with them has one of those shoes they had in the '90s with the blinky heels. Every oh, time you yeah, step, yeah. the lights turned on. And there is serious talk about we got to rip the shoes off of the, that kid. And that mm. kid's got to walk barefoot, or we got to leave that kid behind, or just and it's the a, shoes. It's because it's just a practical mm. consideration, yeah. you know. And that's harrowing and horrifying. Uh, there's this really sad bit where um, they're on this boat, and the the like the secret compartment where they're all staying uh, mm. was flooding, so they all had to leave, and they all had to go up, you know, up on the thing, but. And he's thinking to myself, I'm here with, like, my mom and, like, my brother, and if we go overboard, I can only save one of them. And I kept thinking to myself, which one could I save? And the documentarian's like, could you swim? No, I didn't know how to swim. That did not occur to me at the time. (laughs) All I could think about was who would I save, not about the fact that I have no idea how to do that. Um, But it's also a story about how he's, he's an adult now. And he goes on speaking tours, and he's doing wonderful things with his life, and he's married or engaged to be married to a very nice man, mm. uh, but he's never spoken of so many things. He talks about like if you when you have to flee from country to country and live on the run and live for fear of being found out your entire life, it affects your capacity for intimacy. It affects your capacity for human interaction. And as happy as he is with this person, there are things he's never told him. And this is another case where it's just like torn. It takes like this big giant scope of a thing and makes it really intimate and human. And of course it is because it's a human travesty. What, what, how Mm. difficult it is to be a refugee. It's, it's nonsensical. Mm. Uh, But um, it's a really beautiful movie. I I highly recommend this film. Uh, It's, yeah, it's it's very sweet. If I, I think if you, I'm trying to think of an example here of like an animated movie where it's not quite the same thing, but it's got kind of the same sort of melancholic coming of age tone. I think it's something like Persepolis. Okay, that's not a story about refugee another, per se, another but animated film yeah, too. yeah, another animated film. Because like, I feel like a lot of people when they think animated films, they have specific ideas, and I think there's a lot of films being made that 
are kind of redefining or trying to stay on, like, off what we consider to be the normal chart mm. of what an animated movie would be, even animated movies for adults. And I think this is a, a really potent, really lovely, dramatic story yeah. uh, that uh, is told quite nicely through animation. Did so, the, uh, yeah. Did you, who's, the, who's the director? Uh, the director is Jonas Poer Rasmussen. Okay. Uh, who is, who, uh, did you ever see the 2008 film Walt with Bashir? No, but I'm uh, well, aware of it. Yeah, Wolf, it's, Wolf similar, with Bashir is, is also an animated documentary. That's a yeah. war film uh, yeah. about um, uh, Lebanon. It's about Lebanese, yeah. uh, Lebanese people. Uh, and yeah, that, that has like a few uh, animated fantastical moments, but they also were able to um, capture a lot of the horrors of it via animation. Yeah. Um, um, <laughs> and so in, also I think there was a documentary short film mm. Uh, from a couple of years ago that was animated, but that that was about less harrowing subject matter. That was about people who work in grocery stores. Well, there was this, wasn't there like that animated movie about like the bell tower shooter in Texas? Oh, I don't remember, remember that, that one? one. Yeah, I can't remember what the hell that one was. Uh, it's been done. My point yeah. is this, you know, the, or there was some, there was some really interesting um, animated documentary shorts as well mm-hmm. that we've reviewed for like the Academy Awards. And there's one last year. Yeah. Uh, and um, yeah, I keep straining at the edges of what we come to expect of the genre, please. It's how mm-hmm. the art grows. Uh, so this is really wonderful stuff and I hope people get to see it. Yeah. All right. And then uh, lastly, uh, I don't know. Tell me about Wolf, I guess. I don't know. I don't really have <laughs> segues are hard. Um, Wolf. This Starring is... Jack Nicholson and James Spader. No, not to be confused with the 1994 uh, Mike Nichols film. Um, Which is quite good, actually. I like that film. Yeah, uh, it's pretty cool. I saw it in a theater as a double feature with The Shadow <laughs> back oh, in 1994. That was a good double feature. That's a good double feature. Weird detail about that double feature. They both end with a close-up of a person's face, and the face fades out, and the eyes remain, and then the eyes fade out. No. They both end that way. What are the odds? Yeah. It's That's so weird. Just by complete coincidence. All right. Yeah, I saw Wolf I in the Shadow you back no to back. That no one planned that. I guarantee you. Uh, this is an Irish film. Okay. Uh, it's directed by Natalie Biancheri. Biancheri. I, okay. I apologize, can't get her name right. Uh, and this is about... Um, I think it's a, a real... It's not like a, a well-documented real thing, but I think there are some cases of it, of uh, people who suffer from what they call species dysphoria. Mm. where they don't feel they're human. They feel that they're animals. But this is, takes place in sort of a fantasy version of that, where people uh, are... It's about a bunch of young people. Uh, they're all young, privileged white people, and that's not really ever mm. really addressed, that the, the, the privilege of the people who have this, this condition. Mm. Uh, but they all believe that they're of a different species, and they're being here to... They're at this uh, clinic to be treated and walk walk their way back to being humans again. And they're encouraged in a very Island of Dr. Moreau way to sort of walk on all fours. Uh, you know, what is the law? No spill blood, that kind of thing. Uh, some of them have earned the privilege to wear sort of animal costumes. Uh, one young woman thinks she's a parrot. She gets to wear a beak. And uh, the uh, doctor here, who's a, Believes in sort of tough love. He's played by Patty Considine, and I love Patty oh, Considine. Great actor. Uh, is trying to sort of force them to realize that they are human. And there's a, a scene early on where uh, a young man who thinks he's a squirrel is encouraged to climb a tree, ends up injuring his hand uh, because he's not a squirrel. And the main character, uh, he believes he's a wolf. 
Uh, he is a plays a character named Jacob. He's played by George McKay from 1917. For, yeah, from 1917. Uh, he's he's been around. Um, he was uh, one of the Lost Boys, I believe, in uh, the 2003 Peter Pan. Oh, okay. Uh, he was in the Sunshine on Leaf movie. Oh, now there. Yeah, yeah. That now, yeah. Uh, he, he's he's been around. He has uh, quite a long career as a young man. Uh, and yeah, he believes he's a wolf, and he howls at the moon, ca- crawls around on all fours, and the film isn't, uh, even though it has this sort of like quirky setup, There's there could be something, like if this had been made by the people who made Napoleon Dynamite, this would be milked for all kinds of cheap laughs. <laughs> but it's not. This is actually, actually sees this dysphoria as something profoundly sad, that, that they can't connect with the world around them. Something has gone wrong with society, that these people would rather be animals than be people or feel that they are animals. Uh, he ends up connecting with Lily Rose Depp, who plays a young woman who thinks she's a cat or a mountain lion of some kind. And uh, while it's supposed to be intense and maybe kind of romantic and even a little bit sexual, walking them, watching them sort of stalk around on all fours and relate to each other in an animalistic sort of way, quite frankly, it looks really silly watching these actors sort of crawl around on all fours pretending to be animals. It feels more like an improv exercise than a proper film. And uh, by the end, we get to see how uh, the Patty Considine character is getting a little bit more impatient with his patients, uh, how some people are falling further down the rabbit hole, as it were, into believing that they're animals. And I'm not really sure what the filmmaker is getting at about how it might be better to to live as an outsider. But if that were the case, wouldn't we learn a little bit more about what the world was like or what these people's lives were like outside of this clinic? Mm. Uh, is it more about some sort of great failing of theirs that uh, they have, they're missing some sort of quality in their lives, that they're retreating from their humanity? None of these things are addressed in this yeah. movie. It just sort of is a little bit too straightforward it in its depiction of all this stuff. It doesn't seem like it's a metaphor for anything, though. And that's ah. and that's a weakness of the film. I, I feel like it's not really well thought out, and I think it's a little too slight. And I think it takes this very odd uh, topic, people who think they're animals, and doesn't deal with it in any kind of psychologically real or frank fashion. Uh, it's not about psychology either. It's about uh, a feeling of being an outsider. And I suppose there is something freeing about that in mm-hmm. quirky movies. Films that celebrate being an outsider, right? But that's not strong here. It's not it's good. pretty weak. All right. Well, uh, let's review some movies on the critically acclaimed scale. Hi, Luca. Luca, you want to review some movies with us? Luca's trying to reach up under the table. Did you watch? Did you watch any of the movies? He watched Power of the Dog with me. He thought there'd be more animals. No. Uh, okay. Let's review some movies on the critically acclaimed scale. Our uh, critically acclaimed scale goes from C minus. That's the lowest you can get. It's below average. To C, which is average. A little some you know, mixed bag. Not good, not great, bada bing. And C+, which is above average. C+, is our highest recommendation. We genuinely recommend you see the film, or maybe we think it's the best movie ever made, somewhere in the middle. On that note, Whitney, hmm. where does Wolf fall on the critically acclaimed scale? Wolf is a C-. Uh, yeah, this this whiffs it. It's it's not not well thought out enough. All right. uh, Flea. The animated documentary Flea uh, is... It's... it's it's interesting considering how bold the uh, the form it's mm. using is, how ultimately slight the movie feels because hmm. of its uh, just personal intimacy. Curious. Uh, but um, I'm going to give it a, a mild C+. Um, it's, definitely, uh, it's definitely an emotional journey, mm. and I think it's absolutely worth going on. 
Uh, let's see. Diary of a Wimpy Kid. Uh, a C. Uh, it, yeah. it, it, it captures certain things about the childhood experience. Um, I, I appreciate that it is, you know, a, a little bit brief. Yeah. <laughs> Doesn't need to be epic. Uh, yeah. yeah. And, and I, I did like the animation style where it's very simple stick figure kind of looking CGI figures. And um, it, it's, it's an interesting look that you don't see in a lot of movies. All right. Uh, Torn. If you had asked me right after I'd seen the documentary Torn, to rate it, I probably would have given it just a C, mm. uh, but it stuck with me, and I think in a in a nice way. I think it ultimately uh, it's story about uh, coming to terms with how a family has changed over the course of tragic circumstances. Mm. Uh, got under my skin in a nicely a nicely insidious way, so it's a mm. C plus. Uh, let's right. see, what we got here the hand of God. Hand of God. Um, I'm going to give it a high C. Um, it it didn't knock me out of the park, but I appreciate that n- knock me out of the park, knock it out of the park. Mm. I am a baseball. Knock me out of the park. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I don't think it's it's a uh, quite the home run or the slam dunk or whatever sport you metaphor you would like, but mm. uh, it it does do a lot of things very well. I think the characters are very rich. I think the place is very rich, and I I kind of liked being in that space for a while, even though there are details about the film I didn't like. All right, uh, Benedetta. That's a C plus. Yeah, it, it's it's wild, kooky, sexy, cr- satiric critique of. Mm-hmm. Religious hypocrisy and uh, and also without condemning too much, uh, dealing with a little bit more complex attitudes about how sex and piety can coexist. Yeah, you would think based on, you know, it's Paul Verhoeven, mm. it's a story about sexuality in a very repressed Catholic environment, that this would be a very anti-church, or at the very yeah. least anti-religion uh, kind of film. But I was actually impressed by how nuanced it is and how it really wants, shows how people want to have the cake. Before they eat it, yeah. <laughs> uh, so, um, yeah, I, I love I love this movie's fantastic. Uh, really great performances all around. Really potent story, and yeah, all of the uh, all of its luridness mm. is very, very much very like, pointed, very yeah. pointed, very targeted, and uh, it just really hits on all on all on all levels. Uh, and then, lastly, the power of the dog. Uh, the power of the dog, C plus. Yeah. Uh, this is really one of the best films of the year. Yeah. Uh, it, it is about important things. And Jane, Jane Campion has such a skilled filmmaker about yeah. giving us such a, an emotionally rich tale through mm. what seems like incidental moments yeah. that it's really going to grab you. The, the fact that this movie feels completely natural and you, and you don't realize just mm. how much of like an ornately planned chess game it mm. always has been. Uh, it's uh, it's it's a really stunningly made motion picture. Mm-hmm. So uh, please go see Power of the Dog. It's a C plus, and uh, that is it for critically acclaimed. Uh, we will be back uh, in a weekish next week. So, uh, well, yeah, what's going up next week? What do we got next week? What's oh, going on? golly, what's what don't we have? I know the the new the I Love Lucy movie is coming out next Being week. The it's Ricardos. called Being the Ricardos. It's uh, written and directed by Aaron Sorkin. I've seen that one already. Um, and Ooh. and many other Oscar contenders can, besides Sean Baker's Red Rocket is coming out next week. I'm gonna have to look at my mm. list. I, Hold on, I we got we got down. Red Rocket. Mm. Uh, we've got uh, Being the Ricardos. We got West Side Story. Oh, that's right, West Side Story. West Side Story is coming up this week. So uh, that's a lot. Mm-hmm. That is a lot. Um, okay, so thank you everybody for listening. Uh, if you would like to subscribe, if you haven't already, please do hit subscribe wherever you find us. Uh, we we have a Patreon over at Patreon.com/slash/CriticallyAcclaimedNetwork. Thank you to all of our patrons, without whom this show would not be possible. Yes. Uh, so thank you to everybody who has taken the time and has you know helped pitch in to keep this show and all of our other shows going. If you join in on our Patreon, we have a lot of exclusive shows 
that are just for patrons. You can also vote for future episodes of our various programs. But we have shows that are dedicated to every single episode of Star Trek ever made. Every single episode of the 1960s Batman. Uh, we've got uh, every single film ever nominated for Best Picture. we got to get on that. We have a new episode of that coming up mm. soon. Uh, we do commentary tracks, and we also have... Some cool legacy content. We reviewed a lot of like TV movies. Oh yeah. Uh, we did every single episode of Firefly. We've we've done a lot over there, uh, and that is all currently available at Patreon.com/slash/CriticallyAcclaimedNetwork. If you would like to join in the conversation, there's a lot of different ways to do that. You can follow us on Twitter at Critic Acclaim. I am at William Bibiani. I'm at Whitney Seibold. Uh, but the best way to do it is actually to email us. Our email address is letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. Uh, and we might read your email on an upcoming episode of our show, We've Got Mail, where yes. we read your letters, answer your questions, respond to your criticisms, uh, and basically yield the floor as much as possible uh, to our listeners, because we, we we couldn't be doing this without you. We want to give you some your time to shine as well. Uh, we also have a P.O. box for people who like to send us actual letters, or sometimes people send us things in the mail, which is very, very kind of them. Uh, Whitney, what is what is uh, our P.O. Box? Yeah, right into the Critically Acclaimed Network, P.O. Box 641565, Los Angeles, California, 90064. And um, I think that's it. I'm on Twitter, at William Bibiani. I'm, I'm at Whitney Seibold. And uh, yeah, and if you like soap, head on over to our soap store. Uh, me and M. Lapis da Silva have a soap store. It's called Salt Cat Soap. We're on social media mm-hmm. at Salt Cat Soap, all one word. And we have a lot of really cool designs for the holiday season. Uh, very, very cool stuff, actually. I made uh, some uh, peppermint bark soap mm-hmm. uh, that looks really, really cool. Uh, Michelle made this incredible frozen scene soap where it looks like a Christmas tree and presents have been sort of trapped in a glacier. It looks really neat. <laughs> uh, so uh, we got a lot of cool stuff over there, good for the holidays. Uh, mm-hmm. So check that out. And um, I guess that's that. Thank you, everybody, for listening. And never forget, everyone's a critic. I want to go to the midnight show. I'm sorry, what? <laughs>